the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. You've heard the expression that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. According to today's guest, Dr. Paul Conti, what doesn't kill us can actually leave us with wounds that make life a lot more difficult. Dr. Conti contends that trauma alters our brains and changes the filters we use to perceive ourselves and the world. He joins us today to help us better understand trauma and how we can heal from it. Dr. Conti is a graduate of Stanford University School of Medicine. He served on the medical faculty at Harvard before founding a clinic. He is the author of the book, Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic. Welcome, Dr. Conti. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, doctor, you say that the vast majority of problems that you see can be attributed to trauma. What role does trauma play in the way we live our lives? Well, Trauma has an impact upon us that very often carries forward with us. So it can change the way that we view the world and the way that we view ourselves. So so a way of putting that is it can change the entire lens through which we see the world. And you know, we're familiar with the expression of rose-colored glasses, and what trauma can create in us is really the opposite, is a set of darker glasses or a set of glasses that are filtering out some of the most important or, or potentially most joyous uh, events in our lives or decisions we may make, and really kind of leaving us tinged with the negative, often with fear and with insecurity. Uh, because if we don't process the trauma, it impacts us. And, and the worst part of that is we often just don't even know it. A trauma that has the most impact on us, is it one that happens at any age or does it usually occur when we're children and our subconscious is being formed? Traumas have the greatest impact on us earlier in life. So before our brains are fully formed, which depending upon the criteria we're using could be mid to late teens or even mid to late 20s, we're still in these formative stages where trauma can impact the connectivity in our brain. And and this isn't just theoretical. We, we have a lot of scientific evidence that that shows us how the brain changes or can change with trauma in ways that leave it very, very different without the ability for the brain to assess and know that, right? Because we're using the brain that's impacted by trauma to assess if we're impacted by trauma. And that's often why we don't see it. And our attitudes, for example, can change. We can go from thinking that we have a lot to offer the world and and we can make a good life, life for ourselves. We can go from that to thinking that, well, the world is too dangerous to navigate in, or I'm not competent or okay to navigate it. And these changes can occur in us. And the earlier in life that trauma happens, the more likely it is to impact us more broadly and more deeply. Doctor, I know in my own life, I spent a, a great many years not even paying attention to my life. I didn't think about why I did the things I did or made the decisions that mm-hmm. I made. And it was only once I started to understand a lot of this that I have become more mindful of my life. Do you think the majority of people even recognize what drives them? No, I I don't think that we do. I think we, we have this idea that we are living in the present, but very often we are 
we're living more often in the past where the the events and the disappointments or the fears from the past are, are very much with us, coloring our present, and then we're often looking ahead to the future and to the things that we're afraid of and we're trying to stave off. And you know, this is part of why there's such an emphasis on mindfulness and being in the present. But you know, it, it, and it's a great emphasis. But if we're just saying that without actually helping people understand and and engage in processes that let us assess like what are what are the burdens that we're carrying, what fears do they make in us, then then you know we're, we're talking about being in the present, but we're not actually doing the things to anchor ourselves in the present. You had an experience that really changed the trajectory of your life. Would you share a little bit of that with us? I think you're referring to, to my my youngest brother's suicide. Is that I think? And, yes. And yes. Yes. So, you know, it was uh, an event that made me really stop and look at life and and what was going on in my own life and what had been going on in his life and and just how deeply the traumas that happened to us impact us so my my brother had had very serious medical issues when he was in his teens and they'd come out of the blue and you know we could notice changes in him but but only after his suicide did we really see and understand that how deep those changes were and how his view of himself from a person who was so early in life and had so much to offer and, and life could hold so many great things, it really shifted to one that was much more infused with with insecurity and with shame and with anxiety. And, you know, as strongly apparent as that was after his death, you know, we didn't understand it before, and I'm, I'm sure that he didn't understand it. And, and I think it's, it's an unfortunate example of how deeply trauma can impact us, changing us entirely in the ways that most matter, you know, without the person or the people around that person really knowing. And this idea that, oh, we're going forward with life, but the burdens of the past were creating such fear of the future that you know, he was not able to go on with his life. So, Doctor, how do we turn this around when we have these types of experiences that impact us so greatly? How is it that we can then use this to move forward and to heal? Sure. We can look at what has happened to us, and we can look at it in a way that is honest and objective, right? Often what trauma creates is an automatic reflex of shame. And, and that that's sort of like like letting in, you know, one um, sort of monster or bad actor into our lives, right, that then paves the way or rolls out the red carpet for so many more. So shame is sort of the leading accomplice or the leading henchman of trauma. And when, when we look at trauma, we can understand that. We, we can understand, oh, what what happened to me? What did it do to me? What has been the role of shame? And what else has it created in me? So, so for example, my brother's death created a strong sense of shame that, you know, this awful thing had happened. And, and did this thing happen in, you know, in good people? Or did it only happen in people where there was, you know, there were these awful things to hide? And, and, and even though, like, I didn't actually believe that, but it was a reflex inside of me. And, and maybe I was, you know, one of the the people who should feel shame for not having seen what was happening or done more, and you know, my my views of myself and and what I could do or what I could be in the world were, were really changed after that. And it was only by looking at it and saying, "Wait, I can shine the light everywhere, right? I don't have to be afraid of thinking about this, talking about this, and and I can understand like what this really is and what I decide that it means." as opposed to that essentially happening automatically for me because the reflex of shame gave me all those answers, right? Except they weren't real and true answers. They were, they were very damaging answers. And, and by looking at them and understanding and deciding like, what is actually true here, I was better able to, to have a perspective about it that let me move forward in life. What's interesting, you know, as you're sharing your story, I know sometimes people say, well, they think that because something didn't happen and, and, you know, directly to them, they weren't the person that was dealing with a medical issue or, 
or um, dealing with a particular situation. It was a loved one that was. And so they tend to think that whatever's happening around them doesn't necessarily impact them to the same degree. But would you say that even just witnessing and being a part of something can have a tremendous impact on a person? Absolutely. The, the answer to that is yes. And, and the science proves that, right? We can see brain changes that come from trauma and we can see those brain changes if someone experiences trauma directly and we can see them if someone experiences trauma indirectly or vicariously. The same changes can happen and, and this comes from something actually very wonderful about us, right? That we have within us the capacity for empathy and many people have empathy and, and are expressing and giving and receiving empathy all the time and, and this is really wonderful but the other side of that is is it opens us, it exposes us to to the pain and to the terror of, of things that happen to other people. And if they're happening to people that are close to us, you know, people we love and care about, then the, the, the risks of that are so much higher. But this can also happen by, for example, contemplating things that happen to other people. I mean, I think if, if I stop and think too hard about everything that's, say, gone on in Afghanistan and the, the impact upon, upon good people there, and people who are trying to live their lives and what has happened to them. That if I think too much about that, I can start to feel my heart rate goes up. I can, you know, I can start to feel like I could start to sweat. I mean, there's a there's a way in which we, you know, we try and protect ourselves from thinking too much about the awful things that happen to other people, but we don't want to protect ourselves completely or we lose our empathy. And and so they're in lies the place where we're trying to find a middle ground of being involved in the world and being empathically attuned and understanding that compassion and community and humanity need to be part of all of our lives, but also recognizing that that same connectedness can bring us trauma from the awful things that can happen to other people. And the reason I asked that question, doctor, two years before I was born, my 14-year-old brother passed away. And the trauma that that caused my parents and my sister, I had never realized that 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 grief and, and that experience that my family had was passed on to me. And I lived the trauma of someone I had never even met. And so I think it's important that we examine our life, you know, everything that's happened and not necessarily what happened directly to us. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I agree so strongly with that. And, and you're, I think, speaking to the psychological impact, right? That this impacted your parents, so it then probably impacted how they raised you and how they treated you and their level of anxiety about your health and safety, right? That there were all these ways in which psychologically the, the, the person that you never met was, was present in your life. And, and it, it even goes deeper than that, that on a biological level, the way in which not the genes that were passed on to you, but the way in which those genes show themselves. So, so a gene that may have been active that would not have been active or a gene that may not have been active that would have been active was changed, impacted by a death that occurred before you were even conceived, right? So it takes right. nine months, right, from conception to birth. This was two years later, and the genetic profile of what genes are active in you was changed because of what was changed in your parents before you were even conceived. So biologically, you are impacted. Psychologically and socially, you are impacted. So that death is... is so deep in your existence, even though, as you said, you came two years after it. And, and that is true for all of us around the traumas that people in the generations before us experience, that if we don't know our own histories, we don't understand the things that have even impacted our gene expression. It, it goes that deep. So staying with that thought process for a moment, we've all had a, an extremely difficult year and a half. And, and you look at the trauma that so many of us have felt through this pandemic. The first part is, what will that do to future generations from what you just described, women that are having babies now? What can we expect? And then the second part of the question would be, you know, what will we, the ones that have gone through it, what will we be experiencing? I, I think we're only beginning to even conceive of, of the negative impact of all of this, of the, the direct 
problems, mental and physical health problems that have occurred during the pandemic. So increases in domestic violence, increases in drug and alcohol abuse. These are just, just two examples of things that by happening by and large behind closed doors have not come to attention, right? These are things that people are generally not getting help for, and it's hard enough to get help for anything mental health related in our society, especially given how our healthcare system is structured. So if you add on top of that so many problems that have happened behind closed doors that are that are unlikely to be addressed, then then there are changes directly in the people who've experienced them. And then children conceived during or even years after the pandemic will bear the, the genetic signs of this in, in how their genes are expressed. So the, the, the dangers here are so far reaching and so deep and we're only beginning to see them. I mean, I think it's true that as a society, we haven't been able to get out of our own way. So, so far from looking at, hey, how do we best take care of ourselves? We end up fighting amongst ourselves so much that, that we're further hurting ourselves uh, when we're already you know, just turning our, our, our eyes away from, from how badly we've been hurt. And, and what we seem to be doing is, is perpetuating that. And I think we're going to see that in, in heart disease, in stroke prevalence, in cancer prevalence, in liver disease. We're going to see it in, in physical health ways that are very tangible and very clear to see. And we're going to see it in mental health ways, some of which are tangible, like suicide rates and addiction rates, and some of which will not be tangible, where people's mood is just lower and anxiety is higher and people are more avoidant and, and less likely to engage in the world, that we are going to see a far-reaching impact on all aspects of human life. I just can't imagine how it could be any different from that. And so this group trauma that we're experiencing, does it lead to thinking irrationally and, and do we lose our ability for a critical thought process? Yes, yes. This kind of thing pushes us towards a sense of, of people feeling beleaguered, right? People feeling a sense of vulnerability, of insecurity inside of themselves, and feeling beleaguered, attacked, assailed, and and not everyone, of course, but but uh, but on balance, people tend to react defensively to that. And, and sometimes, you know, the, the, the defense ends up being expressed as an offense. So it promotes things like intolerance amongst us. And, and how intolerant are we becoming as a society where if people disagree upon anything, certainly and especially if it's political, then instead of acknowledging, oh, we disagree, you know, we can very quickly go to a place that says, oh, you who disagree with me are a terrible person. You're ignorant. You don't know what you're talking about. We get so angry and so aggressive and it promotes everything from the racism in the world around us to the political intolerance and ultimately we can get to the point where where so many of us are so afraid and so overly defended and at times so aggressive that we lose the ability to have to have a, a, a dialogue right to have a a sort of common foundation that says look we're all people trying to, you know, we're trying to survive life and, and we're trying to, to make it as good as it can be. And can we just ally around some basic points so that we can all move forward in the world? And we, we do seem to be losing that. And if we don't stem this tide, if we don't really take a look at this and, and change how we're viewing trauma and what it does to all of us, and we run the risk of all of this getting worse and, until we potentially blow ourselves apart as a society. And I, I don't think that that's, that that's an unreasonable or a catastrophic way of looking at it. I, I see that because I just look at what's happening in front of us, the role of trauma, and all of the trauma we're accumulating without processing it. And, and I, I'm not sure where else that's going to go unless we make some real changes. Okay, so doctor, what are some of these changes we need to do? How can we take back our control? So, you know, in the in the book, I, I try and be very practical, right? Because I think we, we need to be practical. We're, we're rooted in the real life, and we want some answers for what can I do today to make things better? So, so you know, throughout the book, there are sort of antidotes for, for aspects of trauma, and some of them... Uh, well, the idea is that for most of them to be quite straightforward, so we, we can incorporate them into our 
lives. So, so for example, even muscle relaxation in order to decrease the tension inside of us. That's just, just one example. Um, there are examples around creating real life narratives. So, so a true life narrative that acknowledges right, what actually happened in certain situations, what was done to us, um, how we were impacted. So the kind of thing we were talking about, instead of the reflex of shame, uh, just promoting trauma, we can make real life narratives that actually look at what's happened to us and what we choose to do about them. So another example would be anchoring ourselves to the foundations of our enlightenment, right? Like how do we know and understand things about the world around us? We sort of anchor ourselves to the lessons of history, right? To the, the principles of the major religious traditions, not necessarily how people act out or behave themselves within those traditions, but, but the actual principles of the major religious traditions. What are the lessons we get from science and medicine, lessons from our own experience, and perhaps most importantly, lessons from early education? What do we learn in kindergarten about how to comport ourselves and how to be kind and thoughtful of others? That There are these foundations that we've strayed pretty far away from that, to which we can re-anchor ourselves. So, so there's just a couple of, of answers there, that there are a series of antidotes that we can follow, um, there are foundations we can ground ourselves to, and we can construct true life narratives that, that acknowledge trauma in our lives, but from the perspectives of truth, not the perspectives of shame. And doctor, adding to that, how important is it to remove some of those triggers, you know, to remove yourself from the media newscasts and social media and to get away from those things that perpetuate the trauma? Yes, it's so important for, for people to take stock of, look, what is triggering me? So, for example, I do look at the news each day, but I realize I want to know the news, right? I want to know, has something happened? Has something happened in a place where I know people and I might want to contact them so it directly impacts me or my family? Like, I want to know those things, but I want to understand the news very quickly and then I want to move on with whatever's next in my day, right? Because otherwise, what the news can do is trigger us over and over again of something tragic, right? And then we, we see it over and over again, and we see every last detail of it, and maybe there are no more details to report, but there's, but there's no lack of news reporting the same frightening details over and over again. And then what we end up doing is triggering ourselves repeatedly, and that changes our system biologically more towards a fight-or-flight environment inside of us and that then can create thoughts that run over and over again in our heads and now we have trouble sleeping so so the media is one example of understanding like what am I doing this for right and so for example if I'm looking for the news it's actually doesn't take me that long to assess what news is of interest to me right that that's very different from from terrifying myself, right, by continuing to look over and over at again or exploring something that's not actually teaching me or telling me anything, but it is really just creating terror in me. And I think that's a lot of our consumption of news isn't actually as news, right? And it's not as entertainment either, right? It comes from a place often of anxiety and desire to know more so we can control things in our lives and what we end up inadvertently doing you're just repeatedly triggering ourselves. And, and a, again, if we look at this and have an awareness of it, we can change some of our decisions. I mean, I've written on a prescription pad for a person, like, here is the prescription. It is not a medicine, right? It is, you know, 10 minutes of news a day, right? Or right. stop watching things that frighten you, right? And, and that can make a big difference in, in people's lives. The book is Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Conti and his work, you can visit drpaulconti.com. That's D-R, drpaulconti.com. Doctor, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? That trauma is widely present in our lives and in our society, and that if we don't look at it, it will drive us forward to places we did not intend to go. But if we look at it, we can create our own stories, right? It is not trauma that has to drive us. It is us that can guide our own lives. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. This is such an important conversation to be having. It's always important, but it just feels particularly relevant today. So I thank you so much for being here. You are very, very welcome. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. to your health. Joining us today to talk about hearing loss and its impact are Tom Kirsting, a licensed psychotherapist, and Dr. Leslie Soilis, chief audiologist at Hearing Life. Welcome, Tom and Dr. Soilis. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So, Tom, let's begin with you. What impact does hearing loss have on a person's life? Well, first off, there's, a, there's this big stigma, you know, around having hearing loss. The biggest one is that you know, it's a sign of getting old. You know, in their mind, when they associate somebody wearing hearing aids, they think, you know, they don't want to believe that they're getting old. But it really has nothing to do with that. Um, it's actually quite the opposite. I got hearing aids uh, first when I was 45 years old. And if anything, I feel younger uh, because of it. And I think anybody could, would say the same thing that has addressed, you know, hearing loss. Uh, the other thing is that the, you know, the people associate hearing aids with, as these, like, big, you know, clunkers on the back of your ear. And the way these things are made now, you can't even see them. And they're just, it's unbelievable how how they magnify everything around you and how it just opens up your world. Tom, do you think this problem causes a person to isolate? Yeah, it certainly does. Um, You know, when you're not hearing, you you, you look sort of unconsciously, and I could tell you this as a psychotherapist, the psychology behind it, um, you do tend to avoid situations. And Leslie could speak to that better than I can you know, as, an, as a, you know, one of the top licensed audiologists in the world and throw you some statistics? Yeah, so uh, Hearing Life actually commissioned uh, a Harris poll because we wanted to, to get some insights into how hearing loss is really impacting uh, people. And we found that 44% of people that have untreated hearing loss feel isolated. Um, And it's because you do start to avoid those social situations where you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're unsure of what has been said. You um, are unsure if you're answering appropriately. And so uh, you tend to just um, back off withdraw and that leads to that disconnection and the isolation. Doctor, what are some of the more common hearing issues that people experience? Yeah, so there are early warning signs um, that will give people a heads up if they do have a hearing challenge. Um, For instance, if you're okay in a one-on-one quiet conversation, but then move into uh, a noisier space like a restaurant, and all of a sudden you have to lean in and you're having more difficulty understanding what's being said. Or if the television has to be set at a level that's louder than what's comfortable for others in the same room. Or if you have to put your phone on speakerphone because you're having a hard time uh, understanding a phone conversation. These are all um, those indicators of hearing loss. Doctor, if someone suspects a problem, what type of testing is done? So the very first thing you want to do is have a uh, formal hearing assessment by a licensed hearing care professional. Once that is done, uh, we would be able to guide you in terms of next steps and make the appropriate recommendation for um, hearing technology solutions that are going to address your lifestyle needs as well as your budget. But the first step is indeed um, having your hearing evaluated 
to find out if there is a hearing challenge. It's recommended that people obtain their first hearing, their baseline hearing measure at age 50, and then just start monitoring on an annual basis from there. What resources are available where our listeners can go to get more information about hearing issues? On our website, hearinglife.com, we do have a tool where people can uh, take a hearing screening. And um, and that also could be a good first step for people to just identify whether or not they need to take a next step for more comprehensive hearing assessment. Tom and Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. It's easy to feel overwhelmed and underprepared when it comes to taking care of your health. But according to our next guest, Casey Guerin, despite what the wellness industry told you, you don't need another cleanse, detox, or supplement. You need a crash course in separating hype from health. Casey is a former executive editor and health director at Self Magazine. She is the author of the book, It's Probably Nothing, The Stressless Guide to Dealing with Health Anxiety, Wellness Fads, and Overhyped Headlines. Welcome, Casey. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Casey, many people are anxious about their health, particularly now, and they find it challenging navigating all of the information that's available. It's really easy to become a Google doctor. And, you know, I laugh when I say that because I remember years ago when I was doing medical editing, no matter what medical document I would edit, I always had the symptoms of that disease. So it gets really easy (laughs) to fall into that trap, as I'm sure you can attest to. I'm sure you've done the same thing. So... How do you think we can go about maintaining good health without becoming that hypochondriac? I can definitely relate to what you (laughs) experienced. I have been anxious about my health and been that person who Googles their symptoms and assumes the worst um, my whole life. And then I ironically became a health editor. And um, yes, it didn't go away. I also, you know, I would edit something and be like, yes, I have that. I definitely have that. Um, But as a health reporter, you know, we learn to ask certain questions and dig through the research and the medical jargon. And you learn how to distinguish between legitimate sources and ones that aren't and debunking those bogus wellness trends. And I realized that those are the tools that could really help the average person to just navigate all of this health information and misinformation that's out there. So I think it starts with you know doing a lot of the same tools and tricks that a health reporter uses when they're you know churning through all of this information. We get so much information from different sources, some reputable, some not so reputable. So how can we go about fine-tuning our BS detector? How can we separate the hype from the health? Yeah, so I think that a really important part is to look for the primary sources. You know, we we learn about primary and secondary sources back in elementary school, and I think it's something a lot of us seem to forget. Um, But you want to always look for, you know, where does that statistic come from? Where does that fact come from? And that can be really hard when you're just on Facebook and seeing, you know, a stat in a shareable graphic or in a meme. Um, But you want to look for that primary source, you know, whether it is peer-reviewed research or a doctor, because you want to get more context around what what you're looking at. Um, And so so often we don't have that context or we see a headline like, tequila helps you lose weight. (laughs) And that's not really what the study said. So I think when it comes to you know, knowing if something that you're reading online or seeing online is legitimate or not, it is doing a little bit of research. And a lot of that starts with kind of playing that game of telephone, you know, going back as far as you can and finding where does this information come from? And you just mentioned weight loss, and that is really an area that we can drive ourselves crazy researching. You know, one day you hear, do this, don't do that. Like you said, drink tequila, don't drink tequila. Although if we had tequila, (laughs) we wouldn't be quite as worried about it. But, um, you know, it's something that we do drive ourselves crazy with. And and particularly, I think, as women, because we have this notion that we have to look and and be this particular, um, you know, body size and shape. And so... I think that also helps us 
to follow a lot of the misinformation because we're striving for something that is often unattainable. So when it comes to diet and nutrition, what are some of the things that you've learned all of these years working at Self? Well, you're right. There's so much conflicting reports out there. And it does seem like if you searched the same, you know, weight loss or nutrition tip, you would find every other year that it goes back and forth. (laughs) And so I think that we should just be really aware of these messages that we are getting from these wellness brands um, and, you know, the, the predatory wellness products and supplements that are promising to help you lose all this weight and and just look at, is there any evidence for this? Is there peer-reviewed research to back this up? Um, and if not, is this even a trusted source on this? Is this just a, a random celebrity or is it someone who has dedicated their career to studying metabolic health and, and weight loss? Um, so again, finding those trusted sources, and that can be a nutritionist that you see personally, someone that whose opinion you respect and having that sounding board can be really helpful when you're getting tons of conflicting messages in the media, because yeah, you're right. We are often getting uh, the message that there's something wrong or off with our body, that we need to be optimizing our health and weight in different ways. And it can really get to you. Do you think that it's important that we learn to listen to our body? I do, but I do think that sometimes we throw around that phrase, just listen to your body um, without realizing that some of us do that a lot already. <laughs> so for some of us who are those symptom searchers, are the people that, you know, we read something and we assume, oh, I definitely have that. Um, what I learned from the experts when I was researching this book is that often that health anxiety does stem from paying too much attention to your body and really being almost too in tune with your body and your symptoms. And so when you tell someone, oh, just, you know, you know your body best, um, that's not always the case. Some of us uh, can't stop listening to our bodies. And so I think it's there's a fine line there. I think uh, listening to your body and, and trusting yourself is one aspect, but also knowing when sometimes your body just kind of messes with you, uh, like having a panic attack. Well, that's the thing, because sometimes you don't know if you are actually creating the symptoms in your body because the mind is very powerful. Exactly. And we know that when we do stress out about a particular symptom, um, and again, that can be you know a physical symptom that's not necessarily medical uh, or pathological in nature, we can make it seem, you know, louder and more salient because we are paying more attention to it. And if you do end up getting stressed out about it, very anxious, and you trigger that kind of fight or flight response um, that we know is involved in a panic attack, that can come with even more symptoms, real physical symptoms that you might attribute to, you know, I'm having a heart attack or I'm dying. Um, But your mind is very powerful, like you said. So it can be really hard and the experts that I talked to for this book did emphasize, you know, if you were worried about something, of course, seek medical attention. If it's something that now this is becoming a pattern and you are realizing that you're elevating these symptoms in a way um, that they can't necessarily find a physical cause, you might want to also seek mental health support because it could be something that You know, if you're just going to doctors, you're not necessarily getting the support that you need. Casey, what are a few of the best online resources for good health information? Oh, great question. Well, of course, um, any health reporter is going to tell you and recommend major medical organizations like the CDC, the World Health Organization, any of uh, the National Health, Health Institute's websites. And of course, you know, those can be very jargony and not necessarily something that you want to read every day over breakfast. So if there are other brands, whether they're wellness brands or news organizations that you like to follow, just look into, you know, do they have a track record of reporting on health responsibly? Do they have, you know, dedicated, trained health reporters? Are they transparent about their research and fact-checking process? And this is stuff that you can, you know, just kind of look around on their website, usually scrolling all the way to the bottom and seeing, you know, their their mission statement and um, a little bit more of, of their process. And if that's something that you think, yes, okay, they know how to report on health in a responsible way, I trust where they're getting, where they're including their sources, then I think that's a perfectly fine place to get your health information. It doesn't always have to just be the CDC. Um, but if you are 
finding that, uh, you know, it's a website that's just telling you like 10 surprising, you know, subtle signs of cancer or the tequila helps you lose weight example, things like that, that might not be the best place to be getting your health advice. The book is It's Probably Nothing, The Stressless Guide to Dealing with Health Anxiety, Wellness Fads, and Overhyped Headlines. Casey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. If you're a business owner and you're not using video to market your company, you're losing customers and revenue. No matter whether you're a one-person shop or your revenue is in the seven figures, video is guaranteed to improve your fortunes. Hi, I'm Ed Lamoureux. I'm the owner of Lamore Strategy Group, a marketing consultancy. The most common two things I hear about why businesses aren't using video marketing is, one, I don't know how to do video marketing, and two, I don't feel comfortable on camera. Well, to both of those objections, I say this. Video shouldn't be scary. Failure should be scary. Numbers don't lie. According to HubSpot, video is the number one form of media used in content strategy. And according to WiseOwl, 84% of people say that they've been convinced to buy a product or service by watching a company's video. So how can you ride the video wave to your own success? Well, as Nike says, just do it. Practice, delete, and repeat until it looks good and feels right. And don't forget, you should tell stories if you want to get engagement. No one wants to watch ads. Well, perhaps with the exception of advertising agencies who uh, make their living off them. Learn how to tell a story, and you'll soon be watching the clicks and views multiply exponentially. If you need help with your video needs, give us a call or visit our website at lamorestrategies.com. This is Ed Lamoureux from Lamore Strategy Group, where our favorite story to tell is yours. When you're having a conversation in relationship and it's somewhat controversial, you probably want to be heard and be right. Quite often that's what we want. And so we're maybe a little defensive, but is that right? Or do we want a result? The result being we'd like to get along. Hi, I'm Lindsay Levinson, Quality for Life Coaching. And they are two different things, getting along versus being heard and being right. See, because being heard and right is our defense, then that connects to our ego. But ego's not really going to get you that far. If you want a result, then you're going to want to work with humility and truth. So if you've got a difference of opinion, I mean, for me, I'll quickly look for a reason to say I'm sorry. And it has to be true. If I don't know what I've done yet, then I will say, I'm sorry you're hurting. I've done something wrong here because you're hurting. But let's talk further so we can figure this out. And you don't want to talk at someone by saying you this and you that because people just shut their ears. You want to use words like we and use words like experience. I'm having this experience. I know your experience is different. There isn't a right or wrong. There's just different experiences going on here. So we just need to talk it through and land somewhere that feels really good for both of us. So you want to do a lot of that non-heated conversation so that you can both feel good, but nobody is charging at another person. It's not being heard and right. It's just working toward the positive result. Lindsay Levinson, qualityforlifecoaching.com. Look me up. I'd love to talk to you, help you in any way I might be able to. One in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. Did you know that hypnosis can help support someone with their breast cancer diagnosis? Hi, I am Mary Beth Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner. It can feel overwhelming and scary to be diagnosed with breast cancer. Hypnosis helps reinforce support in your treatments by utilizing verbiage and visualization so you see the tumors shrinking and leaving your body. Hypnosis supports the mind so you feel that you have the power to help yourself heal and even bring in healing light to the body. Hypnosis helps you deal with the emotional turmoil. With hypnotherapy, you can look within at the cancer to gain insight and find out if there is an emotional connection to it and then you can release it. Hypnosis helps heal the mind, body, and spirit. An openness to hypnosis can connect you to the support, love, and healing that you never thought possible. I am Mary Beth Battaglia, and you can find more information about me and hypnosis at my website, metrohypnosiscenter.com. 
productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Allison Carmen, a business consultant, life coach, and author of The Gift of Maybe, offering hope and possibility in uncertain times. Allison's podcast, 10 Minutes to Less Suffering, provides simple tools to reduce daily stress and worry. Allison's new book is A Year Without Men. Welcome, Allison. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. Allison, you say that men are usually more emotional than women in the workplace. Can you elaborate on this? Absolutely. Um, And I I don't say, you know, there are men and women out there that are very balanced and there are men and women that are very emotional in the workplace. But overall, I do find that men are more emotional because we forget that there are other emotions other than crying. You know, anger, Mm -hmm. for instance, is an emotion. And what I find so interesting about this conversation is women are often put down women are also judged and held back because they're they're told you're too emotional to work here you're too emotional to make these decisions you're too emotional to sit at the big table and, and make the the big decisions that we're making in a company and what's so interesting is i have been working at an all-woman company the last couple of years and i remember i was sitting at a meeting and a woman in the meeting started to cry and she was crying and she kept talking and nobody budged everyone in the meeting just stood still they sat still and she just kept crying and it was really so interesting is that yeah she was crying but she was still productive and her behavior did not affect anybody else. That's what happens. If someone's stressed or someone's worried or someone's crying in a workplace, who cares? As long as their behavior is not put on you, as long as they're not behaving in a way that makes it harder for you, that upsets you. And quite honestly, in the workplace, I've been in situations where I find that men often are more emotional, that their anger spills over to the the person they work with. The the anger of the boss spills over to the employees. There could be resentment. Uh, There could be agitation. I've, I've been in situations where men have physically, you know, hit another person. I've never seen a woman do that. So what's so interesting and why I bring this up is I find that it, it's not that I, I'm against men or I'm putting down men. It's, it's how women are so judged for their emotions when I find them to be more balanced, less emotional, more considerate, and more collaborative quite often than men. And it's a stigma that I think is used to, are used used against women and I think it's not fair and I think that it's not true and I think women are highly capable people and I think they're very balanced and given the right opportunity they will often be extremely successful in the workplace. Using the example that you just gave us where a a man was angry and he let his anger out and he shared his emotions and you know everyone in the room would say oh poor John he has a right to be angry and it's valid but if a woman exhibited the same anger, she would be called a you-know-what. So how do we get past that? How do we move through the stigma to be accepted for who we are and what we bring to the table? Well, we're not going to be able to change the outside world first. First, we have to change the inside world. And the most important thing, what a lot of women do is they get to a workplace and they see the culture. You know, the culture is really not, most cultures in corporate America are not welcoming to women. Uh, You know, I think corporate America was made for men and it allows women in as long as they're willing to play the game of, of who they need to be to be successful. And the only way to start changing this is to commit to ourselves, to commit that we're going to be real, we're going to be authentic, we're going to speak our mind, and we're not going to compromise. And and now there is a little more space for women in the world, so we have to be determined to show up as we are. And that is going to be where our true power comes from. Because if we're trying to be somebody else, we're never going to be our most creative, powerful, present self, and that's when we're most successful. So you can't change how someone thinks about you, but when you change how you think about yourself, you will be a most powerful self. And then if you're in the workplace and you're upset and you're stressed and you're crying, you're still going to be very powerful and you're still going to speak your mind. And I believe that we're going to find our true place. Sometimes corporate America is not the best place for us, but if we're whole and we're real, you know, maybe we start our own business. Maybe we go back back to school, or maybe we figure out a way to get a corporate job that aligns with us. So it's about, yeah, you recognize that there's a stigma, but you go within and you show up who you are, and then it doesn't matter as much. And I think that's how 
things are going to keep changing. And then also be aware of what's unacceptable behavior. If you're a coworker and he's a man is angry and he's putting that behavior on you, then you're going to have to find a way to deal with it in a way that you have self-respect and grace. We compromise ourselves so much because we're so worried what the world will think of us. But when we become more concerned about what we think about ourselves, that's when the world starts to change. So as we change, the world changes. And I believe women have a real opportunity here to become more powerful and to be bigger players in corporate America and in the business world on a whole. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more, you can visit alisoncarmen.com. Or as always, to hear more from Allison, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Allison. Less than 2% of America's population volunteers to defend our nation. Though we rarely see them, we live the benefits of these heroes' sacrifices and the freedom we know and the safety we feel. Each and every day, the Gary Sinise Foundation serves our nation by honoring our defenders, veterans, first responders, and their families. We do this by creating and supporting unique programs designed to entertain, educate, inspire, strengthen, and build communities. The Gary Sinise Foundation has grown because the need has never been greater. Together, we'll improve the lives of thousands of American heroes and their families day in, day out, all year long. While we can never do enough to show our gratitude to our nation's defenders, our veterans, our first responders, and the families who stand by them, we can always do a little more. Join us. Visit GarySiniseFoundation.org. Joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.